，我是 Echo 赵，您正在收听 E E Times on Air。This is your briefing for the week ending March twentieth. E E Times has editors around the globe, all writing for separate editions of E E Times in North America, in Europe, and in Asia, along with several sister publications. Having a global reach is rare among business publications, perhaps even singular. And now that we're all being confronted with one big immediate global emergency, we wanted to take advantage of the fact that we have editors spread across the United States, the United Kingdom, France, Italy, China, and Taiwan. We've all been reporting about how this latest coronavirus epidemic has disrupted the industry. Today, we'll be discussing how the coronavirus has disrupted not just high tech, but also our economies and cultures, all through a personal lens. First, we'll hear from our colleagues in Europe. In another segment, we'll talk with our colleagues in China and Taiwan. Here in the West, we're in an odd sort of time warp, experiencing what some of our friends in China went through many weeks ago. What they have to report is actually a little bit comforting, and because even we can't stand the relentlessness of the news, we'll take a break in the middle to talk with our favorite film historian about what movies to watch while we're stuck at home. Of course, it'll be a list of the best movies about epidemics, but interestingly enough, though there are a few of them, a lot of them are really good movies. First. The following from a press conference recently held by the World Health Organization. The speaker is Director General Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus. In the past week, we have seen a rapid escalation of cases of COVID-19. More cases and deaths have now been reported in the rest of the world than in China. So, how the economic effects of the epidemic got personal in today's episode. We at EE Times have been reporting on how the epidemic has affected the technology industry in the pages of our publications and occasionally here on this podcast. EE Times editors provided some of the first and most thorough reporting on the disruption to the global supply chain from the standpoint of the electronics industry. Well, that's the thing, though. It was only from the standpoint of the electronics industry. Some of our readers believe we should focus only on technology and on nothing but technology. And to be fair, some of our colleagues in our own publishing company believe this too. It's a valid position, but this story is intrinsically different. The basic story wasn't about the disruption of the global electronic supply chain in China. It was about a virus and the response to it. Any story about an epidemic is also about culture, social values, attitudes about science, and the quality of leadership. We brought together our global team for that broader view. The participants in the conversation are myself. I'm based in Portland, Oregon. Nitin Dahad and Sally Ward-Foxton, both in the UK. Maurizio De Paolo Emilio in Italy, and Francoise Pellet, who is in France, and Junko Yoshida, who splits her time between Paris and Madison, Wisconsin. Junko, you were just in in Europe for about a month. You took a side foray into Scotland to do a story on holography. Um, and uh, then you came back. When you left,、uh, there wasn't that much of a a scare in the United States. But when you returned, things had changed. Tell us about your experience. I woke up freaking out Thursday morning. I just heard that、uh, the U.S. president announced that Friday the thirteenth is the last day from anyone、uh, from Europe. Can enter the U.S. 
the, those who hold the uh, U.S. passport and green card can come back, but it's, it's, it's a Friday, the, the, uh, the 13th was the deadline day. Uh, I started getting uh, phone calls and um, a lot of messaging uh, from my friends back in the U.S. Are you coming back? What's going on? And I had no idea. I was asleep. And the, the, my whole life changed. Luckily, we did have a ticket, so we came back. Um, the, the problem was that I wasn't sure that if Delta was going to fly. Um, the, to, to make a long story short, I did not know until I came home that CDC issued uh, the warning that those who came back from Europe are supposed to self-quarantine for the next 14 days. I did not get that memo. And there was no thermal imaging scanners at um, Minnesota, my port of entry, nothing. So it was just really business as usual. And I was coming home. I was glad to be back in Madison. And I happily posted the Facebook post and saying, I'm glad to be home in Madison. And and it's like two seconds later, I get this message on Facebook and saying that, Junko, this means you'll be self-quarantined for the next 14 days. And I said, no. And then everybody went up in the arms of the, you don't know what's going on. And they started to lecture me. And it's like... Shit, you know, that I've been writing about this coronavirus since January, and these people have paid no attention to this. And now that I realize that, uh, even including myself, that being labeled as someone who is a suspect, someone dangerous, just because I came back from Europe, uh, there's a stigma to it. You know, I realized that uh, uh, the reason why I got so upset was because I was labeled that I can't go out, I have to stay home for the next 14 days. Then I realized that that was very selfish of me to think that because uh, the situation, as being a reporter, I covered this thing as much as I could. And then I realized that I really didn't know it on on the personal level how serious this is. This was a revelation. Being a reporter as a third party to report this is one thing, but being the person of a suspect to report this is really a whole new level. Interesting that uh, the airport hadn't yet set up anything uh, for screening. Uh, We've since seen some of the larger ports of entry, some of the larger airports in the United States, um, complete, they decided to screen people coming in, but they're completely unprepared to do so. And what you have is the basic recommendation is don't gather people all in one place because that's, you know, if you have one person who's infected, it gets spread and you see these jam-packed airports, people waiting, you know, to have their temperature taken or whatever minimal minimal measure that they have available. Yeah. And as you mentioned, you said you don't, you particularly don't like being told what to do. I don't think anybody does. And I think that's a, that's a hard thing to have to have to do to, to kind of self quarantine yourself. Yeah. So, um, I'm going to move next to Nitin. Nitin, uh, you're in London, right? Uh, tell us what your experience is. Yeah. So um, I actually live between halfway between London and Cambridge in the UK. So equidistant. And um, I suppose uh, my experience over the last couple of weeks, it's been quite very much life as normal, but there's been a lot of scaremongering. And 
when I came back from Embedded World, I was like, oh God, I shook hands with everybody. I better stop. So I started going to meetings here and I stopped shaking hands and I was made to look like a pariah because no, he said, oh, he doesn't shake hands. Uh, but uh, then I went to last week, I think, a, a digital health seminar at um, Brunel University and uh, talking to you know, various sort of people on sort of health technologies and stuff like that. And even there, people were saying, why, why aren't you shaking hands? You know, so I was like trying to avoid it. So uh, what I'm trying to paint is a picture of indifference in the UK at the moment until we had the Prime Minister make the announcement yesterday that you know, they're going to do something now, where, you know, where we've already had, you know, I think, uh, more than uh, 100 or 200 deaths. I'm not sure exactly the number. So I, for me, I think it feels like it's just too late in the day. But as far as my, you know, sort of what I'm doing... Um, I'm still doing telephone briefings you know, almost every day you know, as I covered stuff um, uh, that's going on. And you know, companies are still pre-briefing. But right now, um, now the government has taken action. I think we're now going to be able to sort of uh, stop going in public places without sort of worrying about what people will say. I think that's kind of where where we're at. I mean, just to give you an idea, I spoke to – I go for an early morning walk and go past a few schools – and um, so this morning, I just sort of asked a couple of mothers who were, had just dropped off their children. And I said, oh, your school's not closed. So no, everybody's going. Uh, and she said, oh, everybody's quite blasé about it. Nobody really cares. So, you know, it's kind of like the attitude is strange, given that we've got so much media hype. I don't think it's a media hype, though. I mean, this, this whole thing actually so quickly uh, the landscape has changed so quickly. And I think people mm. who are not in that country don't realize that. Yeah. Okay. So maybe maybe I shouldn't say yeah. media hype. I, I should say misinformation, because I think there's a lot of misinformation as to what you can and can't do. And that's the thing that worries a lot of people that I speak to here. And uh, just to see how it hits really home, I was supposed to meet an acquaintance last Thursday evening. And uh, I didn't go because I said, well, I don't feel comfortable uh, traveling into London. And I canceled an event as well yesterday. And he told me, he phoned me this morning saying that person we met uh, has tested positive for coronavirus. Sorry, he met. I said, are you going to uh, test yourself? He said, well, there's no method of testing in this country. You know, we really don't have anything, a system. My brother fell down yesterday. He phoned the the system, the 111 uh, sort of non-emergency system. And he was waiting for ages. And the ambulance that they sent was supposed to send it took three or four hours. It didn't come. So they cancelled it. And in des- instead, he'd just been taking ibuprofen. So, you know, the... the in terms of how we deal with it, it's actually quite a mess here. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of information now, yeah, given that uh, yeah, the Prime Minister made a statement yesterday. So, yeah, uh, it's a little bit disconcerting, but yeah, life goes on. So uh, I want to go next to, to Italy. Um, Maurizio, your, uh, Italy ended up being one of the, one of the next uh, big outbreak spots. Um, and, uh, and, uh, it was, it started in the North of Italy. Um, you're somewhere in, uh, on the central East coast. Tell us what your experience is and what you've been seeing in, in, in Italy. So in Italy, um, I think that, uh, the situation is almost worried, uh, since a couple of days, uh, as you know, Italy is in lockdown. Uh, we have a lot of uh, deaths that infected, uh, in particular in the north. Uh, 
Uh, I live in uh, Central Sud, in South, in Pescara. He, around here we have uh, quite a uh, situation, so we have a lot of uh, cases, uh, also deaths, but the situation is, uh, is quite just uh, respect to the north. We are locked in house, and, uh, but uh, I can hear on television that uh, there are uh, several people st still going uh, around, so it's important now to stay at home. I know that is not easy because the, there are a lot of people work and uh, just from now, from today, government uh, is doing uh, uh, something about uh, uh, some uh, political maneuver that uh, should be um, proceed to, to reduce taxes, for example, or uh, other advantages for, uh, for the Italian people. I think that uh, this week is very important for, the, for Italy if Italy uh, will run uh, in this way, we can reach uh, the China with the, the cases, I think. Spain is, is running too, that uh, can reach Italy very well. So I think that, uh, I think that th this week from that analysis, uh, we should have in uh, a couple of days the peak of uh, cases. The infected. You know, Maurizio, I remember that uh, two weeks ago when it was announced that Lombardy was, uh, went into lockdown, you posted on Facebook that I read that you posted, wait until Monday, the whole country is going to be in lockdown. You predicted that. And I said to myself, you know, it's actually important to take this seriously and remember that we are always one or two steps behind the announcement, right? I mean, with the people's mind is not lockstep with the reality is yeah yeah because i know italian people so uh, italian people are very particular so they should know that uh, now this virus is dangerous so usually we can uh, enjoy with everything but now it's important to respect the rules just uh, because we are Italian. Uh, each day, uh, more or less after 6 p.m., Italian people start singing near the window just uh, because they are alone in, uh, in the house and just to share the state positive, the stay strong, uh, we'll sing the, some songs with the, together. Yeah, there's, there's a great video of that on YouTube. We'll embed that in the, uh, the podcast, uh, in the podcast transcript. Um, there's some great ones from Spain where somebody uh, is playing, two guys are playing Battleship across uh, two apartment courtyards. They're, they're, they've got to be 200 feet away, but they're screaming, you know, A7 across. The situation is, uh, is different because uh, also the schools are, are closed and uh, we should manage uh, children and, uh, and the job. So in this way, it's not... Uh, it's not easy because, uh, so for example, uh, we, uh, we receive homework from uh, teachers by Skype, by email, and uh, we should uh, manage uh, also with uh, um, our kids the, the homework. So in this case, we, we are working in this way uh, just to, to give uh, uh, a more responsibility for, the, for our children. In particular, uh, they should uh, use uh, very well the, the computer. And in this way, for example, my daughter is working with, uh, with the Skype, with the violin lesson. And this is uh, a good thing to, to, grow, to grow up a lot. Yeah. Well, that's a good, inter that's a good introduction to turn to Paris, uh, where Anne-Francoise lives. Uh, 
And Francoise, you're there with uh, with your daughter today. Um, tell us about uh, your experience in France, in Paris, and and uh, what uh, what's been going on there, and how you've been able to respond. Um, uh, well, uh, hearing about uh, what's happening in Italy and hearing what uh, Mauritio has to say is really uh, it's like an ego. Uh, well, actually, we have we in France. We are one week behind Italy, um, and there has been a great acceleration in measures over the past over the past five days, and a total change of tone. I was in Paris last Thursday, and we could see people in bars, in cafes, in restaurants, people uh, just wandering around in the streets. And uh, when I came back home, I watched the the. And there was that speech from the president, Emmanuel Macron. And at that point, the tone totally, totally changed um, because he made it clear that we had to be careful and that we had to um, get out of our place just because just when we really needed to. Um, and he also announced that schools, would be all schools and universities would be closed starting um, on March 16th. Um, so I, I think we told, we started um, realizing the situation at that time, but maybe not for all people. Uh, let me explain why. Um, on Sunday, we had the elections in France, and um, people went out to vote, uh, and they were uh, going to parks, uh, just wandering around, just having some good time, um, talking with each other, sitting down um, in the grass. And, and actually, the, the president um, initiated a second speech, um, a very fierce one last night, because he was uh, uh, mad at the, the, the attitude, the behavior of the Parisians. That's why um, he asked for a total lockdown. And um, so we, we, we are not allowed to leave our place unless we have um, a, a very um, um, good reason like for work. My, my husband is a farmer. He has to go to his farm and work on his fields. So he has his, his little um, proof. <laughs> I have one here um, that he signs um, and um, to show that the military um, forces and the police in case um, they arrest him. Um, and um, yes, um, and actually, uh, so as I said, uh, starting yesterday, all schools were, um, are, are closed and um, our kids are at home doing their homework. And I have my daughter with me and she's going to, ex yeah, Eleanor is with us. And she's, she's just going to tell you in French, sorry about that, um, how things are going for her. Um, so let me uh, give the microphone to her. My name is Eleanor. I am 13 years old. I'm in junior high school. I have not been able to go to school since last Friday, but my teachers have been sending lessons and tests by email. I also receive my homework over an online school service and continuously interact with my teachers. This is likely to last for a long time. Merci beaucoup. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Um, 
Well, she, it, actually, she, she's been uh, interacting a lot with her teachers. She's been using online services. Uh, my, my two sons also, um, as Mauricio was explaining, um, they, they get messages from, um, from all over the place, the, the, the school teachers, the, the online, um, the, the school, school service. And um, what I wanted to, to highlight was that they, they were huge bugs yesterday, huge bugs, because all the scholars, all university students got connected at the exact same time, and it just stopped that the bandwidth was not sufficient. Um, so they have to, they will have to cope with that. It's been difficult, it's, they've, they've improved, but it's, yesterday was a total mess. So yes, it's tough. It's tough to be a mother, to be a worker, and to take care of the kids, make sure they they, they do their homework, uh, to interact also with the teachers. And yes, that's that's it. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Anne Francoise. Uh, so Sally, you're uh, you're also in London, and uh, we'd like to see if uh, we get you to give us some of your experiences, what you've seen recently. Sure. Um, Just to kind of compare with what Anne-Francoise was saying, I think here in the UK, they're telling us we're about three weeks behind Italy. Uh, So a little bit further behind where where France is now. Um, Certainly all schools and everything is still open. A lot of people are still going to their workplaces. Although as of yesterday, um, the prime ministers advised people not to go to the pub, uh, not to go in restaurants, not to go into theatres. But it's only advice at this point. These businesses are still open. We'll have to wait and see what the effect on these businesses is if they've got no customers, obviously. Um, but this this is quite a U-turn from last week when the government was telling us there was no need to, to panic, no need to do anything. Now they're recommending social distancing for most people. So, so yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting. But, yeah, like I say, all the schools are still open. Uh, my son goes to a nursery, to a daycare, and they've implemented... Um, they check the kids' temperatures when they arrive and they check the kids' temperatures later in the day and they check all the parents' temperatures uh, were coming to drop off or pick up the kids. So that's the only real thing I've actually seen that's actually uh, had any effect. Um, I spoke to Nigel Toon this morning, CEO of Graphcore, um, the British uh, chip company. Uh, he mentioned that um, all his chip design engineers can work from home. As many as possible are working from home. They can all have access to their EDA tools, he said, via um, VPN access. They have all the cybersecurity and everything set up so these people can work from home. For the hardware, more like hardware type engineers, they the offices are still open and they're working more in like tag teams. So only some of them come into the office at any one time to try and avoid, to try and minimize the contact with each other. So I'm in Portland, Oregon, sometimes uh, comically referred to as the People's Republic of Oregon. We're getting very little viable guidance from the federal level. A lot of the uh, efforts that have been put into place, a lot of the the measures that have been put in place have been put into place on a state-by-state basis. Um, Oregon is politically inclined to respond earlier as the, the, the state of Washington, the state of California are, for example. Pretty early on, uh, the governor asked that uh, crowd control be kept to um, places of no more than 250 people. And pretty soon after that, uh, businesses were voluntarily closing down uh, and minimizing their own operations. 
I think they sense that, well, why is 250 anything other than an arbitrary number? If you're going to quarantine, do it. Um, so uh, pretty quickly, a lot of the music clubs shut down. And I've got, uh, I'm an amateur musician. I've got uh, a lot of friends and acquaintances who are musicians. And uh, they're extremely worried because, you know, if that's your main source of revenue, that's a hand-to-mouth kind of a, a situation. And they're very worried. Same thing with restaurants. Um, I've got some family members in the restaurant industry. Anybody you can do takeout is shifted to doing that. Um, and if you can't do takeout... A lot of them are closed down. Uh, a couple of the local movie theaters. Business is shutting down really rapidly. And uh, it, it's it's really concerning. And then when the NBA actually suspended the season, that's when I think the entire country realized how serious this is. Even if you're not a basketball fan, and a lot of people aren't, but even if you're not... I think everybody senses the extent to which, you know, Americans love their sports every bit as much as Europeans love football. Um, you know, if something like that happens, it's uh, even like I said, even if you're not a sports fan, you realize how big and extensive a thing this is. So it's been really concerning. I'd mentioned earlier, um, I've got a friend of mine who works for a um, clinic in a, a town just outside of Hillsboro where Intel has its largest installation in the world. And she was saying that she was getting conflicting signals as of last week, um, suggesting, yeah, now is the time when she, we should start testing as many people as we can, so go ahead and do that. But at the same time, they were telling her we have X number of testing kits for the state. And she said, I could exhaust the state's supply at my own clinic in one week. Um, so we're terribly disorganized and uh, still trying to figure out how to respond. And the thing that kind of bugs me personally, we ourselves here uh, at EE Times, we're covering the initial outbreak in China. And um, we have colleagues in China. Um, we had Echo Zhao uh, and Junko spoke with Echo on the podcast about three weeks ago, uh, talking about her experiences where she had self-quarantined herself, said she hadn't stepped foot out of her, her high-rise apartment in close to 10 days or two weeks by the time we spoke to her. Um, we all wrote stories about the supply chain being interrupted and life being interrupted, and we all boggled at uh, the drone footage that um, showed empty parking lots at some of the factories. And even we didn't really quite figure out what this means when an epidemic, viruses don't recognize borders, so of course it was going to cross out. I, I don't know if any of you have a response to what the disconnect was between seeing what was happening to our colleagues and our business partners in China and just not figuring out that it could happen here. Well, Brian, um, Ms. Nitin, um, I have an observation on something you said. Um, this, I think just uh, last Friday, um, what you talked about NBA here, it's the football league uh, or soccer, as you call it in America. But um, the Premier League basically said, we're, we're sort of uh, shutting down all matches, I don't know, for how many weeks. 
Uh, and it was only then, because football's so important here, it's only then that I think the, the British government then started changing its strategy because they realized like there, there's a turning point here. And so I just wanted to make a comment on how sport is important. But, um, you know, I just wanted to highlight something else because I think it's, I feel it very strongly. Maurizio wrote a very good piece on how Taiwan um, managed to contain. And I can't understand how, you know, we are supposed to be in the first world, you know, you know the UK, Europe, US, we're supposed to be in the first world and we can't even get that smart. And yeah. I think everybody talks about smart cities. This is an example where, uh, you know, a government has actually used smart government to take con- take charge, take control, and and actually do something about it to contain it. I, th- I think, judging by what I read in you know Maurizio's piece, uh, maybe Maurizio can say a bit more. But uh, that's a way where technology can actually be used. And I think nobody, given all this technology we have, it's the politics that plays over the technology. That's why you know we're in the state we are. You know, but let me th- let me inject myself here. I think the important thing is, yeah. Certainly, the government plays a big role, and uh, you know there's no doubt about that. But the the point that you mentioned, I think all of us reporters who have been covering this since February, early February, um, I think we all, in a way, we we think we can think about things globally, but we really are not. You know, we think we are global citizens. Uh, we travel all over the world. We think we have friends and relatives and the people we know, you know, mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. The, the, all over the world. And yet we are not globally thinking. I mean, it's a, that was the biggest takeaway for me. I mean, it, it can happen here. It's always in our mind, but it's really not really feeling that way. You know what I mean? It's no, like a, you're right. It, Globalization it, it, is new for all of us, I think. Exactly. I mean, it's like it's a mantra. Globalization is a mantra. It's a philosophy, but it's not really on an everyday life, personal level. Talking of global, I was just going to say, um, because I speak to my daughter every day, she's living in Mumbai. And um, Mumbai is pretty much in lockdown as well. Yeah. And yeah, well, not lockdown per se, but you know, there's there's a lot of restrictions. And uh, before uh, President Trump made the announcement of you know, sort of cutting putting a cutoff point for all flights in into and out of the US or or from you know affected countries um prime minister modi in india actually did that and that yeah put fears you know in us you know when will we be able to see our daughter yeah you know, that kind of stuff so uh, and then i was speaking to i think i think my son in law was telling me this morning that um you know they can't go into banks without you know disinfecting and you know they, they have to wear the mask or something and you know, I, somebody else was telling me the uh, the train system, the Mumbai local, that's all pretty much closed down. So yeah, I think yeah, we we are seeing it, but maybe as you say, Junko, I'm not sure that we're connecting the dots. <laughs> no, I have a question to Alphonse. Is the uh, boulangerie, the uh, the bakeries, are they open? Yeah, bakeries bakeries are open. Supermarkets are open. Um, you can go and buy fish, meat, cheese. Well. Our daily routine to have good food, yes. Like uh, fromagerie, yeah, the yeah. cheese shop is also open. Oh, of course, of course. Oh, I was, I was worried about you. Yeah, that's there's a lack of coherence here uh, because people <laughs> keep going and having chat within the bakery. Uh, 
yeah. close to each other, exchanging, um, talking, but exchanging uh, tips. And well, uh, there there's some proximity. Yeah, it's a fabric of life. Right? I know. I mean, it's yep. like, yeah. Oh, great. So I think it's about time to wrap this up. Um, I want to thank you all for joining this call. Uh, stay safe, stay sanitized, stay antiseptic, um, and we'll be talking to you soon. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast with us today. Here's a quick set of recent data points about how the epidemic is affecting the electronics industry and business in general. The top notebook computer makers, that's HP, Lenovo, Dell, Asus, and Apple, saw combined shipments in February 2020 drop 40% from January, according to DigiTimes. Manufacturing in China is reviving, though at lower production levels. Combined January and February production of mobile phones, for example, was down 34% from a year ago. The most recent economic projections for the semiconductor industry that we've seen are from IDC, which basically threw its hands up in the air. The old projection was 2% growth for the industry as a whole. Now, IDC is simply laying odds. It's guessing there's an 80% chance that there will be an industry-wide contraction in revenue in 2020. Now, apart from semiconductors, manufacturing around the globe is getting curtailed. Many automakers, for example, have shut down. U.S. gross domestic product is expected to drop anywhere from 5 to 13%. The most recent predictions for global GDP are that they will still grow, but only by 1% or 2%. We'll see how it all works out. Stay tuned. If we're not officially quarantined, most of us are voluntarily isolating ourselves. That means time on our hands. We here at EE Times love the movies, and time on our hands means an opportunity to catch up on our viewing. David Benjamin is an author who frequently contributes essays in the odd photograph to EE Times. He goes by his nickname Benji. It's probably worth pointing out that his moniker predates the introduction of the cinematic canine of that name. In fact, the closest the two get is when our Benji decides it's time for one of his shaggy dog stories. Anyway, we both noticed that the 2011 Steven Soderbergh film, Contagion, had recently become one of the most popularly streamed films in recent weeks. The average person touches their face three to five times every waking minute. In between, we're touching doorknobs, water fountains, and each other. Matt. No, no, uh, uh, go up to your room, honey. So we have a virus with no treatment protocol and no vaccine at this time. Well, that kind sounds familiar. Anyway, it led me to call up Benji to discuss our favorite movies about epidemics, diseases, and viruses. All right, your favorite plague movies, Benji. Do you have a list prepared? Uh, I've, I've always been fascinated with disease movies, mm -hmm. uh, but it really started in 10th grade uh, history class uh, when I read a book called Rats, Lice, and History. Uh which is which was written in 1935 mm -hmm. by Hans Zinser, uh, a historian uh, who traced the biography of typhus going back to the Garden of Eden and ending around World War One, uh, and it was a wonderful book. Uh, it's one. It's a classic. Um, I could actually read you a little section of it if you'd like. Oh, if you've got something prepared, we'd be delighted to hear it. Okay. This is um, page seven. It's part of his introduction. Infectious disease is one of the great tragedies of living things. 
the struggle for existence between different forms of life. Man sees it from his own prejudiced point of view, but clams, oysters, insects, fish, flowers, tobacco, potatoes, tomatoes, fruit, shrubs, trees have their own varieties of smallpox, measles, cancer, or tuberculosis. Incessantly, the pitiless war goes on without quarter or armistice, a nationalism of species against species, which is what we're dealing right now with the coronavirus. Aren't we, though? Although, interestingly enough, uh, I mean, uh, we're, we're no longer unique in terms of opposable thumbs or making tools, uh, but we are unique in being able to... Uh, uh, to maybe tip the balance in that 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 long struggle against uh, bacteria, viruses, maybe even cancer. Um, I, I suspect that Hans Zinser would still be skeptical of that proposition, um, but <laughs> uh, but we do manage to win all of the victories in the movies, um, and and when, that's what you wanted to wanted to talk about today, right? Absolutely. So in tenth grade. I don't recall exactly when you were in 10th grade, but I am guessing that sometime during your childhood, there was sort of like a golden age of great plague and virus movies. There's uh, The Omega Man, for instance, is one that comes to mind. Uh, the, the Omega Man was more of a zombie movie than... Uh, ah. than it, okay. Um, the first great um, disease movie was The Life mm-hmm. of Louis Pasteur. Oh, uh, and uh, that was that was that that was that was 1936, and that sort of that that set a template for the disease movie because uh, every disease movie, when you look at it carefully, uh, if it's a real disease movie, not a horror movie, uh, and uh, which is what Omega Man was, uh, is that it's a detective story. But instead of the detective being James Bond or Sam Spade, uh, he's a nerd, he's a scientist, or uh, or a doctor. Uh, and he is almost always pitted against an establishment that wants to either dismiss uh, the danger that he's talking about, doesn't believe that things like that exist, or uh, wants to take things like that and turn them into weapons that can destroy mankind. Well, the, uh, that's a theme got ex- in the movies. I got examples if you want it. No, I, I, I mean that's that, that's that's true of everybody from the mayor of Amity in Jaws uh, to uh, you know the mayor of Amity in Jaws is a good example. Yeah, uh, yeah. The 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 scientists in, in in disease movies keep running up against the mayor of Amity. Uh, you know, the one of the first. Uh, uh, examples was uh, was a movie called Panic in the Streets, mm-hmm. which was uh, which was released in 1950. The director was Ilya Kazan, uh, and the uh, the detective was Richard Widmark, who was a federal public health official. Wow! Remember when he had, federal public health officials were heroes? Right, and the disease in that movie was pneumonic plague, which is a form of uh, Black Death, mm-hmm. uh, and it came into New Orleans, uh, and the Patient Zero was a merchant seaman named uh, Kochak, and he had to be tracked down uh, uh, by by uh, after he'd been killed and he'd been diagnosed on the uh, on in the morgue mm. uh, 
as as patient zero as as carrying pneumonic plague basically mm-hmm. uh, and this was one of the first movies this is 1950 where forensic pathology where medical examiners mm-hmm. uh, played played a role in the plot of a police story uh, so there, there were a lot of innovations in this flick that sounds fascinating one I was unaware yeah. of and I bet you haven't heard of this I bet you haven't heard of the Satan bug either right nor have I heard of the Satan bug 1965. Uh, directed by uh, John Sturgis with Richard Basehart, George Maharis, and Francis. Oh um, my God, that's a great lineup! And and this is the one. This is what the, one of the film that introduced the uh, idea of biological warfare as an mm. element in uh, in in the disease film, because the Satan bug was a colossally deadly virus that could kill the kill the entire world in two months. Wow. Uh, that was developed at a at a biological a military lab, a secret a top secret military lab in the desert uh, in the United States um, uh, during the Cold War. Fascinating. And can I can I assume that at the end uh, the uh, the uh, dotty virologist figured out how to save humanity? Uh, the uh, well, actually, the dotty virologist is the one who wants to kill <laughs> humanity. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but it's a it's a federal agent who uh, tracks him down and uh, and eventually defeats him uh, by pushing him out of an out of a helicopter. Excellent, excellent. But as 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 he's falling out of the helicopter, the federal agent grabs the flask full of deadly virus, the Satan bug, uh, and saves mankind. That's a, a happy ending is all right for day, days like this, yeah? Now, we can talk about my favorite uh, disease movie, but what's yours? Wow. So so a lot of my favorite disease movies tend to be uh, uh, a little more contemporary. Um, and, and as you mentioned, some of them are actually really horror stories with uh, a viral outbreak as a... Uh, as a plot MacGuffin, if you will. Um, so one of them uh, is um, 28 Days Later. Uh, right, which is a zombie movie. It's yeah. a zombie movie, but yeah. the zombies <laughs> are created um, by a viral outbreak. Some scientists are playing, uh, doing experiments on, uh, on primates, and... Uh, Something goes awry. The primates get out, infect all of England, um, and uh, our our hero is just a a bike courier uh, who simply needs to survive. And uh, it's uh, it's another one. As more contemporary movies are, a lot of them are dystopian, and this one is as well. Although it had a happy ending. But people heard that they had filmed a couple of unhappy endings in which the hero died, and those are actually included in like the Blu-ray disc. Oh, right. Yes, yeah. yes. Alternative endings. I don't believe in alternative endings. Hmm. That's a different philosophical issue, isn't it? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> if if you're a writer, you you know you have an ending in mind, and you want that ending to be the ending. Alternative endings are a gimmick for audiences. I think I agree with that. Good. All right. My favorite. 
Go. Disease movie? Please. The Andromeda, the Andromeda Strain. Oh, yes. I have. Now, there were two There were two versions. The original version, the film version was in 1971. And then there was a miniseries uh, with, uh, I think, Dylan McDermott in uh, 2008 or 2004, thereabouts. Wow. Did you see both? Yeah. Yeah. I like both of them. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, and and the and the the, uh, the original is is really really well done. Uh, it was uh, let's see, you know, who directed this? Uh, uh, Robert Wise directed it. Oh uh, right, based on based on Michael Crichton's novel, uh, and it, it's a good cast. And uh, and you know it, like all good disease movies, you know, you start with a really strong uh, uh, scientific foundation, and then you have have some sort of emergency action at the end uh you know where you have to chase something or tear something down or blow something up in order in order to save mankind uh and this this is also part of the formula uh and of course and of course the you know the military element here is also is also a part of the plot and that that started out with the satan bug right right i have a very the most vivid recollection of the andromeda strain i have the original movie i was so knocked out that there was a really good, viable, scientific explanation uh, for the the resolution of the, the bug. Um, I recall they had a very old man and a crying baby. And the scientist, who was our hero, was trying to figure out what the two have in common. It turned out that they were both occupied extremes on the pH scale. Right. The uh, the drunk didn't die because his blood was acidic from drinking sterno. Right. And the baby survives because his blood was alkaline from crying continuously. Right, right. And I remember having something sensible in a movie. The Andromeda strain ruined me for just about every other movie afterwards. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it was it was it was scientifically solid from beginning to end. You remember the the source of the uh, of the of the virus or whatever it was uh, was outer space. Oh, uh, the you know the the microbe or the virus had been scooped up in a satellite, and then the satellite landed and it, and it got loose. And of course that 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 was a a, a brilliant notion, but it wasn't fresh because. Uh, Outer space uh, contamination was all, had also taken place in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, uh, which is more of a horror movie uh, than a disease movie. And then it was also true in the Day of the Triffids. Right. In Howard, in Howard Keel's greatest film role. <laughs> uh, oddly enough, I have only read Day of the Triffids, the original book. I haven't actually seen the movie. The flick is good. All right. All right. Something go, that's going on my list. I think you know we can we can talk about we can talk about outbreak, which is a which is a good disease flick. But I think we should probably talk about contagion. Oh, brilliant flick! Absolutely, another one that I thought had a good scientific basis to it. Well, yeah, and also, um, you know, it's it. There's also detective element. There's also the mm-hmm. issue of uh, the reluctant government and the uh, bungling of the CDC. Mm. Um, uh, 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 a slow reaction. Uh, there's also the detective element because we do finally find out why Beth, uh, the the uh, woman who dies first, patient zero, mm-hmm. we figure out how she got it, which mm-hmm. was from a bat that dropped a banana mm-hmm. that was eaten by a pig that was slaughtered by a chef who took his photo with Beth, who then ate the pig. And... Uh 
similar to the epidemic we just recently saw, the jumping from uh, a virus mutating and jumping from animals to another animal, us. Yeah, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and originating in Asia and originating from probably uh, although we don't we're not sure about the the current coronavirus the assumption mm-hmm. is that it was that it originated in bats right and then was uh, and then somehow worked its way up the up the food chain uh, to people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What else? There's a there's some others more recent, um, and I can't say they're really good. But if you want to just like toss them into that that category. Um, World War Z, essentially a zombie movie, but again, a viral infection. Uh, you know, the Night of the Living Dead mm-hmm. was also was also some sort of a virus or an infection. The original zombie movie. Oh, right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to quiz you on this one. What is the great film in which the virus actually works to the benefit of mankind in the end? Uh, your guess is as good as mine. I don't know. Uh, the War of the Worlds. Oh, of course, yes. I would. I would. I was going to bring that up. Yes, right. Yeah, the War of the Worlds. Yeah, in, in that case, the aliens come down and they get sick from uh, probably uh, the H one N one virus. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So there are happy endings sometimes. Yeah, I had that. I had War of the World in, in my notes, but you, but you, but you, uh, you, you, you framed the question so that you stumped me. Good work. And, and it's not easy to stump you. I feel very proud of myself right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, any more movies on your list? Because I'm just about done. Um, no, you know, we could, you know, uh, that's 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 the list. And you know, the interesting thing, I guess, is that when I knew I was going to talk to you today, I thought about, I started to think about disease movies, and actually, it's a, it's a. It's a very effective genre for good films. There aren't a whole lot of bad disease films, but there just aren't mm. very many of them. It's true. Um, it's true. And part, partly, it, partly it's because I think this is kind of an anti-intellectualism in Hollywood mm. that that is reluctant to, to cast uh, doctors, scientists, even engineers as heroes. Uh, they, and, and also the science... Uh, and the plotting uh, for a disease movie, uh, trying to trying to weave action into it mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. difficult. Is difficult for uh, for Hollywood scriptwriters. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, uh, you know, I'd I'd like to stand up for like another set of fellow writers, but I'm not sure I can do it in this case. Look, that's why you and I are not Hollywood scriptwriters. Amen. Yeah, perhaps that's true. All right, Benji, thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. All right. Hey, one last question. Sure. Are, are you is your is your Netflix subscription uh, in good in good standing? Uh, I I have a whole lot of stuff backed up on my DVR, and and I have a huge DVD collection. So uh, so I, I I'm not actually a subscriber to Netflix. If I run out of uh, uh, D- DVDs <laughs> and backed and backed up backed up TV shows on my DVR, then I'll I'll have to resort to Netflix. That'll be sometime in July. Okay, buddy. We'll uh, we'll talk to you later. Okay. Thank you very much. There's one more film in this category I'd like to mention. It's called The Navigator. Not Flight of the Navigator. That is a totally different movie. Just The Navigator. It's set during a plague in 14th century England, and it ends up somewhere else entirely unexpected. 
It's by turns gritty and lyrical, and it's not going to be to everyone's liking. And it certainly wasn't when it came out in 1988. But if you like indie films and you can find it, I can't recommend it highly enough. The outbreak of the pandemic started in China roughly two months ago, just as millions of Chinese citizens began traveling during a local holiday. The patterns of the epidemic that were set in China and its neighbors are only finally beginning to play out through the rest of the world. Italy is on lockdown, as we heard from Rizzio. Here in the U.S., there's been a complete failure of leadership at the federal level. We've seen some governors of some individual states respond quickly, trying to emulate the best practices employed internationally, while other governors are only now acknowledging that there's a medical emergency to respond to. Taiwan, an island off the coast of mainland China, put in place measures that so far have been effective at checking the spread of the virus there. Our colleague Judith Chen is reporting in from Taipei. Mainland China, meanwhile, is making progress. The epicenter of the pandemic was in Wuhan. Echo Zhao is in the EE Times office's headquartered in Shenzhen, several hundred miles away from Wuhan. We had her on the podcast a few weeks ago. At the time, she was quarantined in her apartment along with her eight-year-old son. Here's our conversation with Judith, Echo, Junko, and myself. The reason why we got together is that we're fortunate enough to have the co- our colleagues who, as just Brian just mentioned, have probably experienced this COVID-19 coronavirus uh, experience probably four to six weeks ahead of us. In other words, that they are where we will be um, the end of next month. And uh, we're sort of looking into the future here. By talking to you, we will learn what we will go through the next two weeks, at least for the uh, during the uh, quarantine time. But also after when the ban is left, then what? I have no idea. So let's talk to, this is sort of like going back to the future. That's the title of the segment. All right. So let's start with uh, Echo. Echo, you and I talked about um, the first time we talked about coronavirus. That was the beginning of February, and you, you were, or the late January, actually. You were talking about you are in the Philippines and you're coming back to Shenzhen. You're not sure whether it's wise for you to come back to Shenzhen, right? So let's start from there. How, how, what were you feeling then, and how things? changed once you came back to Shenzhen the beginning of February? Uh, yes. Actually, before that, we have already noticed that the outbreak in China. And in that uh, spring uh, festival, I spent with my uh, family, my big family uh, abroad. And when we came back to Shenzhen, I, we found that everything changed. There's nobody in the street and people are all stay at home. And it's so quiet. And uh, when we came back, we are ready to go back to work. But at that time, we know that uh, the government is extended our holiday. Um, with uh, The first time is with three days. And then after three days, we got another one week. So at the, at the first day, people are happy. So we have extra three days holiday. But after seven, yeah, yeah, after seven days, we are worried. Can we go back after seven days? 
Yeah, so that's what happened. And actually, after that seven days, uh, uh, the government still encourage that uh, uh, you you work from home. And our company that also encouraged us, we we all work from home for another uh, week. Yeah, so that's what happened. And now, since we uh, came back to office for maybe five, six, uh, five weeks for now, and everything became, I think it became back to normal. And we noticed that the building is almost all the companies they resumes their work, and we think we are ninety percent normal. Except we we wear the mask. We have the <laughs> uh, limited. Uh, I mean, you can't to visit other your client or to have the big meeting. But yeah, I, I think ninety percent is uh, is is normal. Ah, do you wear gloves? Uh, no, gloves no. But some people, yeah. <laughs> It's interesting because in America, part of the reason that we can't find the masks,、mm-hmm. um, a lot of my friends are saying, "Well, no, mask is not important. That you should wear gloves.、Oh. That's what I because there are so many touch screens, you know,、right. public space. Yeah, because you go to the bank, you have、uh-huh. to use a touch screen,、uh-huh. and people are worried about that. So、uh, now people are saying, 'No, you should go out and buy gloves.' What、uh-huh. do you think?" Ah, <laughs>、uh, gloves. Yeah, it's a good way. We 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 don't use gloves because I think it's maybe、uh, not environment friendly because you need to change the the、uh, gloves every time. But we use the、uh, uh, medical、okay. alcohol、right. that if I touch something, I spring to my hand and make my hand clean again. Okay. All right. But what was the hardest thing when you had to stay home and work home? What was the hardest thing that you had not expected?、Uh, actually, I'm a little enjoyed stay at home. <laughs> you did? <laughs> yeah, I did because、um, yes, definitely you lost your chance to go out to hang out with your friend, to go to the cinema, to have the have lunch, have dinner, have. Good food,、uh, but yeah, but stay at home make you maybe think about your life, think、uh, do do things that you don't have time to do. Wow! So don't worry, don't worry. I, I noticed that my friend in US they are、uh, now have the policy of the sh- shelter in place.、Mm-hmm. That means they 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 are encouraged to stay at home. Yeah, yeah. I think maybe you can practice your. Cooking、uh, skills. <laughs> I'm already doing that. Yes, definitely. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, maybe read novels or or other else to watch some TV series. Yes, maybe、yeah. you don't have time to do at the normal days. That's very positive. It's not. It's not tough. It's not tough. It will pass. Only fourteen days. <laughs> We have. We have two fourteen days. <laughs> two fourteen days. Okay. Right.、Um, all right. So we're gonna、um, we're gonna come back to you, Echo. But I'm gonna I want to talk to Judith. Judith lives in Taipei, and she just told me that she never had to self quarantine. Why is that? Why you didn't have to do that? 
Actually, in Taiwan, we were aware of the information about coronavirus very early, so we did a lot of precautions to prevent infection.、Mm-hmm. I didn't go abroad or meet anyone came from overseas in the past few weeks. That's why I don't need to do self quarantine.、Uh, I think I'm really lucky. I can keep my normal daily life. Interesting, but but here's the thing. Weren't people worried about you may have in be in contact with somebody whom you don't know? For example, if you take a, a public transportation, maybe there are some people Taiwanese who might have come back from just、uh, China, or maybe it's even that even they 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 have some contact. You know, it's like a, what we call six degrees of、uh, connection, right?、Um, so. Um, were you not worried about that? Indeed, worries exist. So we are used to wearing a mask anywhere, especially on the metro or on the bus. It does not only protect yourself but for others, and we try to keep a distance from others, of course. Yeah, that's a, that's another social thing. I think Echo just mentioned that、um, uh, you know what's appropriate or what's being considered advice in China may not be uh, uh, translate translatable in other cultures, which is true, right? I mean,、uh, when you greet each other, I mean, I grew up in Japan, so we bow, we never shake hands, or we never hug. Um, you know, we don't do that. That sort of things. That that social distancing in America. There's a. I didn't even know there's such a term, social distancing, until I came back to the U.S. this time. But、um, that that social distancing is that that's a like really big deal for the people in the West, is it not,、uh, Brian? A- absolutely. I mean, uh, we've. Uh... Kind of、uh, all still think of ourselves as cowboys. Go where we want, do what we want, and、uh, you know, hang out. Whether it's at、uh, you know a basketball game or at a bar or at a restaurant, and all of a sudden,、uh, not being able to congregate in groups become it, it's an unnatural thing for us.、Uh, you know, we had Maurizio talking about、uh, in Italy. That's not the way Italians work either.、Um, It's、uh, yeah, it's a it's a hard thing to adjust to. You have to stop and think about it all the time. Right. So Judith, I'm going to come back to Judith. So you didn't have to、uh, stay home. You actually came to work every day. Is that right? Yes, I still have to go to the office every working day. But a lot of events and exhibitions here were canceled or postponed. And we're really afraid to get in any indoor space with many people. Outdoor is much better. We even can take off the mask. What about did the restaurants and movie theaters? Are those things are closed also in in Taipei? No. Most of the restaurants and the movie theaters in Taipei are still open. They don't close business, but almost no guests. I think no one wants to see movies now, and、uh, no tourists here. I think the entertainment and the tourism industry in Taiwan are really suffering. So, so I'm going to come back to、um, the、uh, echo. Echo, right now in the United States, even some places, their restaurants, coffee shops are still actually open. Not a lot, but some places. But they do. Institute 
a rule that you need to be far apart, like two meters apart. So that uh, the so fifty percent of the space of the coffee shop, for example, closed, and uh, so so right now after fourteen days, back to the future. I mean, you where, where you live now. That when you go to coffee shop or lunch, for example, for your lunch, um, do people sit normally or that they actually sit apart? Yeah, actually, I. Go around uh, last Sunday to Haiancheng. It's a big shopping mall in Shenzhen, and I noticed that ninety、uh, percent of the shops are open, and most of them are on sale. So, yeah, it's the it's big discount. So I feel that yeah, we we I need to buy something to support them. Yeah, <laughs> so. Yeah, I shared. I uh, I uh, in my、uh, WeChat, I encouraged my friend to buy something to support this small business because I think, yeah, everyone will, uh, did a tough time. So, yeah, it, it it's if you can, if you could, please support them. Yeah. Do you see a lot of people when you were at the mall? Did you see the normal,、uh, normal amounts of you know、uh, the size of the crowds, or that there actually fewer people go out shopping? Ah,、uh, it's not as mu-、uh, as many as Yura. As yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's I I would say it's still a lot of people there. All right. So when you compare、uh, the life before coronavirus, after coronavirus. Although we're not really after yet, we are still in the residual state of、uh, coronavirus.、Um, what is the biggest change? So for 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 me personally, I feel that the biggest difficulty is the kids, because the kids still at home. The school is still closed, and he's only yeah he's only eight years old, and it's hard to hard to look after him. And at the same time, he needs to study online. So、yeah. it's too hard. So who who takes care of him while you're at work? Fortunately, you know my my parents. They spend the、uh, whole、uh, festival with me, and they stuck in Shenzhen. Actually, they、uh, based in Xi'an. It's another city,、oh, but Xi'an, they yeah, right. Yeah, but they, they, they stay、move. with me now. Yeah.、Uh, oh, that's very nice. That's maybe very lucky. Yeah. yeah, they maybe they will back to Xi'an after the school is open. Right. Oh wow! So、uh, it's a long-term、right. stay. What about you, Judith? What about you, Judith? Have you noticed、uh, some differences before the outbreak and after? Well, we still keep the fresh memory of SARS epidemic happened seventeen years ago. It was、ah, a painful、right. lesson, and we learned a lot from it. This time, we got enough knowledge and preparation. And I think we also have more advanced technologies, so we will try our best to survive in the combat with the new virus. Right. So I guess、uh, the your institutional memory as a as a as 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 as, as、uh, in, in Taipei. I mean, you actually were prepared. Uh, in a way, in many ways. All right. Um, well, thank you very much for coming to the show. I mean, it was very, very useful because、um, I think that、uh, Echo, your positive thinking,、uh, that encouraged me a great deal. But also, both you and Judith reminded us that this is not over yet, 
and uh, things won't be over even after 14 days. This will become the new normal. All right. Well, thank you so much. Are we learning our lessons? Some of us seem to learn sometimes. Some of us don't. Taiwan experienced the SARS epidemic 17 years ago and prepared for the next epidemic. The U.S. helped respond to the SARS epidemic 17 years ago and then recently decided preparedness for the next epidemic isn't important. How about the next disaster? Will anyone abstract what we learned about this disaster to prepare for others? If history repeats itself, some will and some won't. That's unfortunate because the viral epidemic isn't even close to our only global emergency today. Climate change is already having profound consequences, and the global response is inadequate. What we don't have enough of, culturally, politically, economically, is acknowledgement that this too is a problem with consequences that are as dire as a viral epidemic, if not more so. Perhaps it's just that the consequences are accumulating so gradually, too many of us can't seem to work up a sense of urgency about solving it. Well, reporting is a mission, not a job. It's stories like these that make it clear why that's so. I want to thank you, and I know the other editors at EE Times want to thank you, for listening, for reading, for commenting, and emailing, and for generally supporting us. That's your weekly briefing for the week ending March 20th. Thanks for joining us, and we hope to have you back next Friday with our next episode. The weekly briefing is available via Spotify, iTunes, and Stitcher. But if you get there via our website at eetimes.com, you'll find a transcript, links to the stories we refer to, and other goodies. And if you like what you've heard, share the podcast with your coworkers and friends. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McRae at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.